0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Emotional and physical triggers can cause stress induced cardiomyopathy, and that mimics the symptoms of a myocardial infarction. How can physicians differentiate between stress induced cardiomyopathy and a more conventional myocardial infarct? And how is stress induced cardiomyopathy treated? Our guest today is Dr. Scott Sharkey. He's a senior consulting cardiologist at the Minneapolis Heart Institute and he's the director of the Takotsubo Cardiomyopathy Research Program at the Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation in Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Sharkey.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wright. It's
0: a pleasure to have you here, and I think uh, before we ever get started with this stress-induced cardiomyopathy, I'd love for you to tell our audience how the name Takotsubo became applied to this condition.
1: In 1990, there was a report in the Japanese literature of five patients who had an unusual acute cardiomyopathy that resembled very much a myocardial infarction, yet the coronary arteries were normal in these patients. And so the investigators felt they had a unique cardiomyopathy. And in Japan, there's a a ceramic pot. It has a narrow neck and a broad base. That is used in the ocean to induce octopus to come in and hide, and they use that to trap the octopus for eating purposes. And the shape of the left ventricle in this particular condition resembles very much the shape of that pot. And so these Japanese investigators attach that name, Takosubo, which is a Japanese name for that ceramic pot. And in their report, they use that name, and that has now become established throughout the world, really, as a one of the several names used to describe the condition, but its origins are in Japanese literature.
0: This cardiomyopathy was initially felt to be due to an unusual type of myocardial infarction. Is that right?
1: It was thought to be a coronary artery spasm, as Mm. was the initial hypothesis of these investigators as to what was causing this very unusual and very large wall motion abnormality that looks like similar to that you see with the occlusion of the proximal left anterior descending coronary artery. So, At first glance, it looks like a a large anterior wall myocardial infarction. But there's no real severe coronary occlusion from thrombosis or atherosclerosis that you see. They felt that they saw spasm in some of their patients. As time has gone on, and we've studied a lot of these patients, we've not seen much spasm, occasional reports of it, but it hasn't borne out as being the definitive cause for the condition.
0: So let's talk about how you diagnose this condition.
1: Well, as you alluded to, the presentation is virtually identical to that of an acute myocardial infarction. The age of the patient often over the age of 50. average age is about 65 to 70, so that it's an older population. The dominant symptom is chest discomfort, pressure, or shortness of breath, so the same symptoms that you would see with myocardial infarction or unstable angina. And then often the electrocardiogram will show acute ischemia. Now, the most common thing you see on the EKG is ST-segment elevation, which looks just like that of an anterior wall myocardial infarction from left anterior descending occlusion. So that's the most common thing you see, but there are occasional patients with ST-segment depression or T-wave inversion. An abnormal EKG in some way, shape, or form is typical. Troponin is elevated. Often the very first troponin measurement is elevated. So you have the constellation of symptoms, electrocardiographic findings, and troponin elevation, and, and the clinical presentation is that of an acute coronary syndrome. So when the patient appears clinically to you, usually from the emergency department, I think you can't tell what it is you're dealing with, whether it's this tacosubocardiomyopathy or a usually occlusion of the left anterior descending, and you're obligated to do an urgent coronary angiogram to find out. Now, the history can be helpful because many of these patients, as you mentioned earlier, there is an antecedent trigger, either a physical stress, such as an acute medical illness, or an emotional stress, such as the death of a loved one, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But just based on your first half hour, hour with the patient, I don't think you can tell what you're doing with.
0: And so you do follow the traditional workup in the beginning and an urgent workup at that, considering this constellation.
1: I considered an emergency, and I've gotten to the point where I recognize that I can't differentiate some of these patients, which is which, without a coronary angiogram.
0: I'm sort of torn at this point to go directly to the cath lab with you, and let's talk about the angiographic findings, or we could tarry a little bit more and talk about the history or patients that are considered susceptible or at risk for this. Why don't you choose?
1: Well, I think to better understand what it is about the condition, we'd talk about the angiographic findings and then the historical aspects of the triggers for this. But if you do an emergency angiogram on this patient, I think the reason for doing that is to be sure there's not an acute coronary artery occlusion, specifically involving the left anterior descending coronary artery. So typically what you see with the TACOSUVO cardiomyopathy is widely patent coronary arteries, all three. Because these patients are in the 50-plus age bracket, you may see some coronary narrowings, which would be not unheard of at that age. So you may see 20, 30% stenosis in some of the vessels, but certainly nothing that would explain a big wall motion abnormality, which is the characteristic of the condition. And that's how it got its name, Takotsubo. So the left ventriculogram done at the time of cardiac catheterization is really what catches the eye of the clinician and the cardiologist. It's a very large wall motion abnormality involving the entire anterior wall, the apex, and much of the inferior wall with hypercontraction at the very base. So the only part of the heart that is contracting is the very base of the heart. And it gives a very characteristic appearance that most cardiologists, and I'm sure you've seen this in the cath lab yourself, uh, can really almost instantly recognize what this is looking just at the left ventriculogram. The wall motion abnormality is extensive. The Ejection fraction is often 30% would be average, so quite low. Heart failure is common. Some of these patients require an intra-aortic balloon pump to support their blood pressure, and sometimes they are in such significant heart failure as to need mechanical ventilation. So they can be quite ill. I think the most obvious finding is that of the left ventricular contraction pattern that you see, and you can, of course, appreciate this with an echocardiogram as well.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Scott Sharkey. He's the senior consulting cardiologist at the Minneapolis Heart Institute and director of the Takotsubo Cardiomyopathy Research Program at Minneapolis Heart Institute Foundation in Minnesota. We're talking about stress-induced cardiomyopathy. Now, Scott, you left us there in the cath lab. You were generous, saying that most cardiologists would recognize this, but that's really a result of the research that you and others have done. Before this was defined, I can tell you from my own experience, there was a lot of head-scratching in the cath lab. When you saw someone who was of the age group with the typical symptoms, very typical EKG, you knew you were going to find an occluded LAD, and you see this huge wall-motion abnormality with a hypercontractal base And yet the LAD is wide open. There may be a smattering of other coronary disease scattered, but certainly nothing to account for this. How did we go from that clinical picture to recognizing this as a condition?
1: Yeah, I guess you're referring to how was this figured out in in (laughs) the broader scheme of life. Well, first of all, the first description was actually those five Japanese patients from 1990. And so credit goes to those investigators However, that was written in Japanese and not translated into English, so it remained unknown to the North American and European cardiology investigators until a later time. Now, we started to recognize patients with those characteristics that there was more than just one or two of them, and we, I guess by accident, you get two or three of these in a row, and you realize there's some common themes amongst those patients. Sooner or later, you get 10 or 11 of them, and they all have the similar features. And it took a while. Our first report was in 1998. The journal CHESS was the only journal I could get to accept our research findings, as some of the other reviewers of the papers really didn't believe this existed. So there Mm was a learning curve amongst the North American medical societies as to whether or not this truly was a uh, condition, a real condition or not. Then subsequently other people saw the same things and more reports occurred and uh, people became believers. So it was a very gradual process and only in 2000, 2001 was it discovered that the Japanese had been writing about the same (laughs) condition in Japanese and finally everyone realized that this was an international phenomenon.
0: So talk to us about the stress part of this, the role that stress might play or the emotional physical triggers.
1: Well, that's to me one of the more interesting parts of this is oftentimes the patients will tell you, in fact, some of their presentation is because they're in distress because of a sudden trauma, be it uh, emotional or physical. For example, a sudden death of a loved one is a very common trigger for this argument with a family member. So emotions such as grief, anger, fear. I've had patients, for example, in northern Minnesota, lost in the country roads and Hmm. flat tire without a cell phone. So things that in our everyday life create a sudden emotional stress. Or, on the other hand, a sudden physical stress such as a medical illness. We have patients where the trigger was a broken hip. We've had patients who have had this as a consequence of cholecystitis and cholecystectomy during exacerbations of obstructive lung disease when they're using their inhaler. So the common theme seems to be related to the sympathetic nervous system activation, whether it's by emotional activation or from a physical illness. And that's why catecholamines have been postulated as playing a role in the pathophysiology of this condition is because there's a stress trigger in about 90, 95% of these patients you can get in your history some form of a stress trigger.
0: Are there any differences you've observed in gender or racial or ethnicity?
1: I don't know why I forgot to mention that, but the most interesting part about this really is the striking predominance of women. About 95% of cases are female. I don't know why that is. Many people have speculated about that. I certainly Think that there's the role of estrogen and progesterone, while that's a commonly used theory, is probably not the whole answer. We've had my oldest patient is 96 years old, I think, but the youngest reported is a two year old child oh my. who had this occur during surgery for cancer. So it's certainly not unique to a postmenopausal population, but it's certainly a female condition. Occasional males with this condition. But for some reason, the females are susceptible to this.
0: And Scott, how about the reversibility of the wall motion abnormality?
1: Yes, this is an excellent point. This is acute myocardial stunning at its most elegant example. Therefore, that wall motion abnormality that you and I talked about that you see in the first hour will go away in the course of five to seven days generally, as quickly as two days. But typically, seven days. It's a gradual improvement in the left ventricular contraction that you see, and it's completely reversible. In fact, if it doesn't completely reverse, that calls into question the diagnosis. The troponin release associated with this is usually very minor, so we measure troponin T in our lab, and typically the peak of the troponin T is 0.6, certainly less than 1 nanogram per ml, as in contrast to an acute myocardial infarction from, say, a LAD occlusion, left anterior descending occlusion, the troponin peak may be 2 or 3, something like that, so an order of magnitude higher. And this minor troponin release is felt to be due to cytoplasmic release of the troponin and not cell death because when you look at these patients with MRI and contrast, you really don't see any evidence of myocardial necrosis or scar at all as opposed to a myocardial infarction patient from coronary disease where you would see permanent scar. So these patients have an excellent short-term prognosis and might add a pretty good long-term prognosis as well.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Scott Sharkey about stress-induced cardiomyopathy. Scott, thank you so much for being our guest and thank you for the research you're doing. This is fascinating work.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for the great
0: questions. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.